Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to talk about cinema. Today, we are talking about one of the big dogs of American cinema on, I think it's about the year anniversary of our Ford Fiesta episode, so go back and listen to that, because it's a classic. We're talking about someone arguably even more jokes, even more iconic, even more professional and unprofessional. (laughs) They're actually crazy comparable. Yeah, even more Catholic, even less Catholic. (laughs) Even more of a decorated war hero. Mm. We're talking about the big talker, Bob Altman, who recently had a full retrospective at the BFI through the months of June and July. What a brilliant way for them to welcome us back to the cinemas, getting to watch Beyond Therapy on 35mm. <laughs> yeah. Or, or so, and Sticks. Yeah, some of his films really are the definition of like cinematic. We're talking Panavision, stuff that was like film's response to the sort of aspect ratio constraints of television but then also he was very involved in you know early hbo stuff as like a director or whatever filming plays um in like you know the classic like letterbox aspect ratio so yeah they really had it all at the bfi uh i you made it to two i did both screens of popeye were during england games in the euros which was outrageous but i i did what i had to do and i went to see the best american film of the 1980s in a reasonably well packed out cinema screening it was when it was all a bit of prang and covid was it screen one yeah yeah they were both in screen one it had to be screen one and i saw california split that was the first film i saw in the cinema in about six months which was a very pioneering film for his like mad sound techniques but we're going to get onto that sam you went to see i went to see nashville jealous Uh, uh, one of the few altman films at that point that i'd actually seen Mm. already but What a treat to watch it in the cinema. Actually in NFT2, so didn't really get the full widescreen experience, but honestly a sensational film. We were sat like right at the front as well, and Shan hadn't seen it and she loved it. Like he came out singing the song. Uh, And that's just a a remarkable, remarkable film. Um, Probably from the high point of his career. We're going to talk about his career at length today. Between us, we've watched most of his feature filmography. Mm. I think it's fair to say there are a few gaps, but as I keep saying to you off mic, this is a provisional foray. No, no. <laughs> this is our preliminary investigation. <laughs> Part one of Alt Men. Um, <laughs> Nashville also had a nationwide restoration and re release, and you could have seen it in art house cinemas all across the country. And also, McCabe and Mrs. Miller has recently been uh, reissued as part of this. Five films from 1971. Sounds like someone listened to uh, a <laughs> uh, hundred years ago episode where you could see Clute and Five Easy Pieces, Last Picture Show. Oh, I just looked this up, man. <laughs> what the fuck? Tulane Blacktop and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And that was 1971, the year Hollywood went independent. And that was done in conjunction with Cinema Rediscovered, the sort of repertory film festival in Bristol. But I think they've got screenings of those at Riverside Studios and Hammersmith and also in a lot of independent cinemas, perhaps in your city. Brilliant. And you've got to go see McCabe and Mrs. Miller because I'm so jealous that I just watched that on a kind of knackered DVD. Mm. Could have been a way worse copy. But I think, as you said to me, there's no film that looks like that or feels like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say straight up that is number one for me. When we were thinking about how to structure this episode, we were thinking maybe top fives. 
um top quintets <laughs> it's a, yeah it's sort of impossible though i wrote out like three top fives with none of the same films in them sticking to form sam yeah do you remember, do you remember our year-end episode <laughs> um but yeah i mean i think we'll, we will appraise these films like in quite a lot of detail hope so i spent like, ages watching them <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like how how much do i go into mccabe and mrs miller now like this is a film that has a yeah a truly unique aesthetic and in terms of its like thematic richness it's just so wild but the same can be said about a lot of these films yeah even the really bad ones have the sort of asconceness of his like perspective mm. and they all have like humor in them mm. but they're all kind of funny and kind of like wacky reading this robert altman oral biography which published a few years after his death which is you know an oral history you don't actually get that much from the big man's mouth but you get a lot of um his writings and then anecdotes from my family members and people he worked with and the one unifying thing throughout that whole book for me was that on pretty much every film that he directed there's a story about him doing some wild shit where everyone thought he was going to get fired for it and then nine times out of ten the studio heads just thought it was the coolest shit ever (laughs) Yeah, he had a very antagonistic relationship with the system that he was working within. And as you said, that 1971 ICO program is about, like, uh, what did he say? It's uh, subtitled. The year Hollywood went independent. Yeah, so, um, you know, I guess hegemony of the studio system at that point was, like, being challenged a bit more by these sort of filmmakers. Yeah. But the 70s was, like, such a crazy rich period for Altman. Of course. Well, I guess until the end of it. It's sort of the 80s where... With Popeye, I think specifically that he really sort of ended up both alienating and being alienated by the studio system and like sort of turning to these like smaller productions. But yeah, by all accounts, these productions sound crazy. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, He's a true maverick, right? And, you know, he is considered one of the sort of pivotal like new Hollywood figures. But unlike nerd losers like Steven Spielberg (laughs) and George Lucas... Um, He wasn't actually from that generation. He didn't study film. He'd already been working as a commercial filmmaker for about 15 years before he made MASH, which was his first big success. Mm, But he's still considered part of that spirit. Um, But he's more generationally close to someone like Ray or even Howard Hawks or someone like that. Definitely. I mean, this is a guy that was like a co-pilot in the Pacific Theatre in World War II, which immediately makes him closer to that generation, yeah. even if all the direct, like Ford or um, George Stevens, people mm-hmm. like that, that were involved in it were sort of old men by that point. Yeah, the other guys of like New American Cinema were like... In diapers. <laughs> yeah, um, there's another point you made that I wanted to pick up, though. I can't remember what it was because he said a bunch of shit. <laughs> that's what that's what all um, men would have wanted you to feel, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I will just pick up on one thing that I said. If you follow along with like what Peter Biskind would say in his like uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls book and subsequent documentary or whatever, that new Hollywood thing with like Coppola and Arthur Penn and these sorts of filmmakers, uh, all Pauline Kael's favorite filmmakers, um, they're all considered to be really subversive, but actually something like Star Wars or even Jaws is very uh, conservative. Mm. Whereas even Altman and his like shallowest and weakest work was still really anarchic and just brought a totally different flavor to filmmaking and storytelling, mm. both on a formal level and in what he's actually trying to tell you. 
definitely. And that comes down to how he works with the actors, how he treats scripts. And... Script? What's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, even in the sort of small... And yeah, he's renowned for these ensemble pieces mm. like Nashville, A Wedding, Gosford Park, stuff like that. But even in the like smallest like sort of chamber pieces with mm. like a handful of cast members, they are sort of characterised by this multi-perspectival uh, nuance, which is just, yeah, one really of his, one of the essential features, I think. One of his best films, Secret Honor, only has one character in it. Yeah, exactly. But I guess much like something like Images, which deals with a schizophrenic character, his portrayal of Nixon in Secret Honor is uh, like scattered and he's like... <laughs> arguing with himself mm. and um, I guess that's what I mean like so and when he can apply that sort of treatment of in, the individual to these <laughs> oh, I didn't even say shortcuts as well which is a uh, you know one of the key examples of that yeah. um, like these like very complicated characters and you just see like a bit of their lives within like a wider framework as well um, really the master of that I'm looking forward to talking through most of the filmography from his really weird 50s stuff, all of which hits pretty weird, but I guess he was working on his approach at the time, up to a company and Prairie Home Companion and his uh, swan songs, which are great last films. We're going to get into it. this is going to be largely comparative today because there are a lot of sort of interesting relationships between these films uh, which we'll get into I love it when he's when he's like he just makes another film again in case you didn't get the point of yeah <laughs> um, yeah as you said he he was like in his mid 40s by the time he made MASH so up to that point I think we should spend a bit of time looking at his sort of formative years again as he said uh, working as a sort of commercial filmmaker for uh, this Kansas City-based Calvin company Mm -hmm. that made these sort of instructional educational films for companies. We watched one called The Dirty Look from 1954 as part of a a film club selection by the love of our life, Jolie. (laughs) And he loves Altman as well, so this episode goes out to you, Jojo. It was with um, California Split as the feature, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So The Dirty Look is literally a 20-minute film about having a golf oil petrol station. Is it, yeah. Is that the brand? Yeah. Who having, fuck a, cares? having a loquacious father. Yeah. It's... Uh, I just can't... I struggle to imagine the context in which someone originally would have watched that film. So you work for golf yeah. and you have a petrol station. Right. And you have like a franchise or whatever. And then what, do you get called to like the head office and they show you this like 20 minute film? I just can't I've imagine seen, like what? I've, I've been told like from friends who like work in supermarkets or whatever and then they like get all their training videos and they've all got like Barry from EastEnders and stuff. Yeah. Stuff like that, you know. But as an anti-Hollywood thing, you know, this is a pretty interesting grounding to come from, I mm. think. You made this film called Modern Football. Um, all of this stuff that I've seen from the 50s is so weird, man. It's way more weird than Popeye or Three Women or whatever. It just feels completely different to anything I've seen or whatever. Not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you read accounts that like he was already sort of honing his idiosyncratic approach to sound. Mm. 
at this point, especially in terms of overlapping dialogue. Yeah, so overlapping dialogue is really... Yeah. We're not going to do any uh, sound editing for this episode. We're just going to do it as God intended. If you watched his Lifetime Achievement Oscar presentation speech by Lily Tomlin and Meryl Streep, which he directed... Yeah, it's brilliant. It's really funny, yeah, where they're just cutting each other off all the time. Because I guess if you boiled down Altman's style to one thing, it would be that. Mm. And maybe like slow zooms as well. Which mm. are pretty mad techniques still, you know. Yeah, I mean, in terms of camera work, we'll get it. We'll get, yeah, into, we'll it, yeah. get into it. But um, yeah, these films are pretty trivial. But I guess the point is they really gave them a grounding mm. in terms of, I guess, working on budget, working with small crews, like being resourceful, all this shit. I really want to watch that film. It's called Whirly Birds about like helicopter pilots in the desert in Kansas or whatever. Sounds like a mad experience, but... Yeah, I mean, I I think I only remember reading about this film in the context of him, like, basically being a bit of a philanderer (laughs) and, um, like, sort of courting his new wife, like, in front of his old wife and kids, like, on the set of this. Oh, very good, Bob. But, yeah, I'm sure it's an interesting work of art. Let's fast forward a little bit. He made, yeah, loads of, like, TV stuff as well, which Mm. we haven't really got involved with, but he did do some Hitchcock... Present. Is he it did. called Hitchcock Presents? Alfred Hitchcock Presents, yeah. It's like half-hour plays or whatever sort of suspense stories. I guess they are often in the Hitchcock mould. God, what could I even tell you? I can't even remember the names of these episodes or whatever. They weren't very Altman-esque. Mm. That's what I can tell you. you there is a funny quote about him doing the craft suspense theatre, right, which is like another weekly thing. And he's like, yeah, I prefer their mac and cheese or whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you do get the sense that all of this was like, journeyman stuff yeah but again he was hustling hard and like trying to break into the film industry i think his first few sort of scenarios were co-written in the late 40s so like soon after coming out of the air force or whatever he was like moved to la and was like trying to make it happen with that iranian dude his like mm. protege that you kept on getting to pretend that he was a prince so that he could get like nice oh, hotel yeah, rooms. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think this potentially before that, but yeah, there are so many of these crazy stories. Honestly, <laughs> an extremely storied guy, and I, I think that's you, why you his... missed out my favorite stories, which is that after he'd been a B fifty two bomber, um, oh my god, he started yeah. an enterprise um, as <laughs> Identity like dog or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Hollywood's first dog tattoo artist. <laughs> Um, I guess it's in the days before microchipping or whatever. But he he tattooed like the president's dog and stuff like that. Yeah. And he's like, oh yeah, we were about to get it cracking. And then like one of our partners like ran away with like 15 grand to Ireland or some shit. <laughs> um, anyway, these are sort of formative years. And we are talking about like one of the great auteurs. Mm. And I guess the point is he really came into his maturity like as a filmmaker in like the very late 60s. And then the 70s was just like a crazy streak of, you know, some of the best American films of all time, basically. I guess the most sort of successful film he made in his like early obscurity was this documentary about James Dean that was made very, very quickly after he died called The James Dean Story. This did get a screening. Proper cash-ins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they would definitely make it now. But they, that did get a screening at the BFI, unlike Countdown, which is a proper film about astronauts with James Caan that looks really good. Yeah, so that's 1968 and was basically really interfered with by the studio yeah. execs. The year after, probably his first, like, auteur film, which 
shamefully neither of us managed to what we should have coordinated that movie one for a bit as well we fucked up yeah <laughs> i think it's yeah still on bfi player that cold day in the park this is a film that's often um at least in sort of academia looking at his work is treated alongside two other films images from uh 1972 and three women from 1977 now these are all about i guess the like the female psyche mm-hmm. They're all horror films, sort of. Yeah, or psychological thrillers, or whatever genre convention you want to apply to it. All have been like sort of equally problematized and celebrated by like feminist critics yeah. as well. They're quite divisive, mainly because like they are his films with like women main characters, but they're also like nuts or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, Robin Wood in a brilliant essay. Very critical essay. Yeah, one of the most critical pieces on Altman that I read. He says that Altman may often adopt a female perspective, but he never adopts a feminist perspective, which is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, ouch, ouch indeed. Um, But he's not like Lars von Trier, who's just like interested in showing women suffering like again and again. Also, most of his films don't even have main characters in them. Yeah, that's a really important. That is a really important point. Apart from a few that literally have title characters. And actually two very similar films, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Popeye. (laughs) True, yeah. Which very much are about the sort of agency of their main characters, so to speak, sort of propelling the plot forward. Also, both films that start with like a stranger coming into a insular community, Mm. both with crazy sets. Popeye was shot in Malta, I think, and they like built a set for it the still, still there yeah you can i went on the website there, yeah dude. you can get married there i'm getting married there. yeah but it's like a, a i guess like a theme park slash registry office yeah. Yeah. slash like place where you can potentially fall through a rotten gangway right. <laughs> you get the impression it was built to look like it was in disrepair in 1980 definitely 41 years ago well, it has a strange aesthetic, which is almost like expressionistic, right? With these like, sort of like a fairy tale construction almost, but so tactile as well. Yeah. Like it's not painted, it's like very physical. And there's a lot of physical comedy in that film that like sort of responds to that. Yeah. And the sets in McCabe and Mr. Miller are the exact same. That was built in Vancouver and replicates like a turn of like the 20th century, like sort of, you know, settlement. Set in 1902. Yeah. McCabe and Mr. Miller, many, many crazy things about it, but watching it just the other day, I didn't really clock how, like, as opposed to, like, Leone's, like, Once Upon a Time in the West, which really, like, draws attention to the fact that this town is, like, developing before your eyes. But with McCabe and Mrs. Miller, that's going on, but, like, it's just in the background, like, entirely. You see, like, buildings spring up and, like, the town grow, but, like... Mm, yeah, but the main characters are central to that. Of course. You know, they're, like, entrepreneurs or whatever. Yeah. Mrs. Miller being... Well, I guess they're both... Um, pimps or whatever yeah 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 but they're these characters are sort of instrumental in that sort of early like business aspect of like the centrality of business to like the growth of these like little townships and settlements we talked about first pacao at the start of the year which is so obviously like very indebted to mccabe and mrs miller in every way and the fact that kelly rycott made it about a bakery as opposed to a fucking whorehouse or whatever but it's essentially got the same premise about like a friendship like built around or like a love affair built around enterprise yeah and then being crushed by the fucking that that's exactly the the point that i didn't quite get to with (laughs) mccabe and mrs miller and and how 
bloodshed and, um, you know, brute force, like, integral to that, like, sort of liberal economic practice. Yeah, they also both have René Aubergeon in them, and that's obviously a homage to McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But apparently it was actually an homage to Bruce McLeod. Well, because he's a bird man. He's, he's the bird, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In, in First Cow, he's got the bird on his yeah. shoulder, and in... So- Brewster McLeod is the craziest film you could ever possibly watch. And like every like reel is interrupted with like a lecture on ornithology by René Abogenois, who's becoming a bird more and more every time. He's doing the hand rub, he's going like Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. That um like sort of punctuation as well is like maybe a sort of uh notable quality in his work that you see in other ones through like these radio announcements. Mm all these sort of things that like break up the and they're often diegetic as well but they sort of break up the action within a scene or between scenes in uh, Nashville you've got like the political candidate driving around with the speakers the fucking oh, what's it called the replacement the party. replacement party yeah. um, they're gonna get the lawyers out of Washington in mass you've got yeah the announcements um, I feel like they do this a lot Kansas yeah. City like I loved it in lots of radio. Friends. I loved it in Thieves Like Us. The use of radio in that as a as a radio head, um, <laughs> I've never seen a soundtrack like that before. Where he's using broadcast from the thirties, he's using actual. Oh yeah, they did a lot of archival work. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. And like sort of advertorial, like so it's not just like. Yeah. Yeah, it's the whole aspect of like radio as a commercial practice. Yeah, because you get that Romeo and Juliet uh, production. Mm. And you get the same scene in Romeo and Juliet about four times in the film, and it just gives the impression that, like, fuck, radio must have been so dead. They were just, like, yeah. rerunning programs <laughs> all the time yeah. or whatever. Um, you didn't really like Thieves Like Us that much. Um, I liked it. Um, that I haven't seen They Live By Night by Nicholas Ray. One of my favourite films, man. So they both have the same source material, right? That's right. But, but, but of course, you oh, didn't, you didn't watch, watch it. it. Yeah, all right, mate. <laughs> yeah. Still not seen it, mate. Yeah. <laughs> What's it saying then? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like a pretty straightforward depression era. Um, both sort of yeah. uh, doom sort of crime story mm. and uh, sort of coming of age slash, yeah, Romeo and Juliet style love story. Um, he changed I, it quite radically from They Live By Night. With oh, the so it ending. has a different ending, yeah. A less brutal ending. Yeah. Apparently. But They Live By Night. Fuck, I love that shit so much. I put off watching Thieves Like Us for years because I didn't want to be disappointed by, you know, it's very rare that you get, like, one of your favourite filmmakers remaking one of your favourite films by another of your favourite filmmakers. You really liked They Live By Night. Sorry, you really liked... Um, Thieves, Thieves Like Us, like I thought, us. was wonderful, yeah. man. Um, I could watch, you know... The fact that Keith Carradine and Shelley Duvall are so often just like bit players, even in like McCabe and Mrs. Miller or mm. Nashville. I think that was their first, both of their Well, they're both, first... in, they're both in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah, but is that both of their first screen performances? No, her first one was Brewster McLeod. But they're so convincing in this film, even though it's such a weird milieu. We need to talk about the Coca-Cola product placement. Okay, but this is this is apparently all he remembers from his childhood. And it's also in Popeye, you know how they have the like ketchup. the ketchup bottles. And he's yeah. like, when I think of my childhood, I think of like Coke back when they used to put Coke in it and cats, yeah, yeah. cats up. And they what. call it dope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's literally every scene in Thieves Like Us. They're slurping from a bottle of cool Coca-Cola. 
Um, and there's a scene where like someone drives out a woman's like driving like a sort of promo car, like mm. handing it out to kids and stuff. Mm. As you said, I guess there is an anthropological quality to that or uh, element of nostalgia. But you know, you can't help but laugh when you see I, such flagrant product placement. I think it's hilarious, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's even funnier in Popeye because that's like very removed from like the real world. So to have that like Heinz packaging is like <laughs> just fucking stupid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. But I mean, product placement is everywhere and very rarely do you get your attention drawn towards it in such a way. Yeah. Um, in such an unmistakable way. Thieves Like Us, I just want to say, like, there's so much more to it. It's shot in Mississippi, like, on location in Mississippi, where the novel is set. Mm. Apparently, no. He didn't want an American cinematographer, because, like, they have preconceptions of what Mississippi should look like. They always thought it was, like, the ugliest part of the country or whatever. But the cinematographer... Jean Buffetti. Who shot Thieves Like Us, really captured it. You see the first shot of them when Chickamore and T-Dub are escaping from prison or whatever, and you hear them talking from like miles away as they're like sailing over the the mississippi river i guess and it's an astonishing shot or whatever and there's so much to the mixing and stuff. that bit was like miklos sure it was crazy as a tracking shot um and we see this sort of cinematography let's just get into a couple of examples now the long goodbye i guess is the one that's most renowned for that unchained camera Mm. in that one by um, Vilmos Zsigmond. Yeah. In that one, it's like fucking I Am Cuba or something. It's going crazy all over the place. It doesn't stop moving. Yeah, um, <laughs> but this is a common feature. It's not like it's some sort of sacred thing, though, where it's in antithesis to editing mm. or the cut, because he still uses cutting a lot within these to show different things. But like, it's an ambitious way of sort of capturing the scope of the space and the things that within it. I guess it also relates to the use of sound as well because, yeah, he'd like mic people up individually like as a proper pioneer of that as a practice to get this, yeah, sort of polarity or plurality of voices and he'd like mix them differently or, you know, supervise the mixing of them differently to bring out different things in the scene. And yeah, it's just related to this crazy visual technique as well. The one that I love for that is Gosford Park from 2001, which, you know, it's all set in a mansion. And there's probably more characters than there are in Nashville, even. There's so many leads. And it's a crazy cast. I mean, it's... Can I say, I think, so after Nashville, he was like, oh, he made this one a wedding that neither of us have seen. But I think he's literally... So Nashville has, like, what, 24 main characters. And then for that one, he's like, there are 48! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, God's the fuck cinematography. That's that's it. What a joker, man. Yeah. (laughs) You want to be smoking some serious... Serious yeah. shit to be coming up with that ideas like that. Anyway, so in Gossip Park, the mixing is just ridiculous where like you see loads of different characters' mouths moving around a table at the same time, but then you get this sort of forensic mixing where you get the impression that you could be watching 10 different films or whatever if you just made a choice to show. Especially because... It's improvised a lot of it as well. So yeah, it then becomes like a very collaborative and... Um, but also, you know, after the fact sort of selective editorial process which sort of makes these films what they are i hate to be this fucking guy but like one of the best chapters in ulysses right is what is it chapter 13 14 the wandering rocks where you just get little snatches of people's conversations or whatever all through i guess it's it's the most it's the one that's the most like dubliners right but to put that sort of idea in like film form this is like he was a pioneer of this and not only was he a pioneer but no one's really done it 
like you could say Paul Thomas Anderson has like attempted to do it. Well, I think he's attempted the sort of scope. Yeah. And it's quite, I don't know, it can be so fucking cheesy and annoying. Yeah, 100%. Um, that like, <laughs> oh, everything's interconnected. Oh, so. Yeah, we have uh, Robert Ullman like, to thank for Crash from 2000. Yeah, well, exactly. It does yeah. generate that sort of like extremely undernose. But he would never make such glib points as these films. Even Magnolia, which is like a good well, there's film. There's no point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really doesn't want to convey an argument with a lot of these, you feel. But that's the that's the issue some people have with Nashville, right? Where they can't decide whether he is just taking the piss out of all these like southern people or not. I really don't think he is. Even though like most of his other films with music have like really bad singing and like deliberately bad music in them. But I don't think that necessarily means that he thinks like this is shite and these people are like hick idiots or whatever. Nah. No way. Well, okay. I think one thing that slightly modulates that is that his conception of Nashville as a place is as like a melting pot where people go to, right? Yeah. So I guess every day you drive in, you see people much... trying to make it like, yeah. with a bad So it's pack. not as much like interrogating like the indigenes of, mm. <laughs> of Nashville mm. as like, or, you know, the, not the fucking indigenes, but you know, I mean, like the milieus. The denizens. Of it, like, yeah. It's more like looking at like a mentality in the same way a film about, you know, Hollywood would do. I haven't watched the first. I can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> I didn't like it. Yeah, I know. you. Well, you were like, don't prioritise it. There's another one which I haven't watched, which is probably his biggest critical flop and a film that oh, one of the studies calls it like, you know, pretentious and solipsistic or something like that. And it's um, what, quintet. quintet. Okay. Well, this is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my this life. This is like at the end of like a real hot streak yeah. of like these films in the 70s that we've just spoken about. Yeah. Um, so in Altman on Altman, it's got the rules to Quintet in the back. So maybe we can have oh, a game yeah. <laughs> later. Um, quintet takes place in a sort of Arctic landscape. It's like Snowpiercer, right? Or whatever, where it's like yeah, been yeah, some yeah. sort of apocalypse and like there's only a few people left on Earth and they spend all their time playing this weird game, this, like, board game or whatever. It's like if the day after tomorrow started, like, at the very end, and then they have a board game. And they're just playing Catan. <laughs> but it does feel like how I feel when I'm, like, playing Catan with you a lot, or how I used to feel. I kind of get it now. But, like, we don't really know or care what's going on. <laughs> but people really, really fucking care. And like, I oh, how could you do that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's got a crazy cast, man. It's got Bibby Anderson. It's got, like, Fernando Rey. Yeah, that's crazy, dude. So this is, like, cashing in on his, like, European art house capital, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. But he's making... <laughs> it's a stupid film, man. Like, I get I get the point. Like, I guess people say this about Buffalo Bill and the Indians, where they say, like, oh, you get the point, and then just makes it, makes it over and over again. But I didn't really have that problem with that film at all. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that film. But this is the same where it's, like life is just a game because and like art doesn't matter anymore so people just play this stupid board game but that is all that the film's about or whatever and it's got really bad music it's kind of like it's like the start of like empire strikes back but it's like yeah it looks like that i watched the first five minutes of it and then i was like you know i'm gonna do something else right now and i never got back around to it i'm sorry folks i don't have a hot take on quintet it's really really bad like um, there are a few. I guess the other really bad one supposedly is Beyond Therapy, which we haven't. I don't want to watch that, man. But yeah, again, that was like 
That's oh, I was going to say that's late seventies, but it's not. No, that's like late eighties. Yeah, it's so, like that and um, OC and Stiggs were the two like real bad taste films he made in the eighties, yeah. right? Well, let's talk about the eighties for a minute before we start getting into these films properly, because I, I I feel like we touched on a lot of salient features of these films already, but we will interrogate them a bit more. Sure. But will. just yeah. in terms of the biography, then, so in the eighties, after Popeye. The studios didn't really want to work with him, and he didn't really want to work with them. It doesn't even make sense, because Popeye made bare money. I think it's made more money out of than any of his other but films. But it's just... Yeah, okay, so <laughs> it's the same year as, like, Heaven's Gate, right? Yeah, right, okay. So yeah. this is the sort of context, like... Um, yeah. And I think it went over budget, and, like, no one was happy. Maybe you can say the same about some of his earlier ones, but... I think there's also an element of hubris on his part, because, like, you know, he's being mm. offered, like, MASH 2... Uh, <laughs> right, okay. uh, you know, after Popeye, and he's like, "Well, fuck that! Like, I don't want to do that." Hubris or integrity, man? You, well, no, but okay, yeah. If we think of him as a journeyman in the fifties, like you know, well, whatever. So basically, you know, I guess it's like a mutual separation from the studio system, and he starts making these sort of stage adaptations directing plays, you know, off Broadway or whatever. Yeah, because he wasn't doing, doing that like, before, was he? Doing didn't? like operas and stuff. Yeah. Um, so there are Much some like interesting... uh, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, 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 there are some interesting films out of this period. Haven't seen all of them, but the first one is Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which has basically an all-woman ensemble cast, so yeah. it's unique in that respect. It's told in a sort of present and flashback mm-hmm. format. In the past, like, one of them is a guy, but in the present... She's played by Karen Black, who's mm-hmm. also in Nashville and was a singer. I don't know. I I quite liked it, but I don't know. It was a bit. It was a bit dry to me. It very much so felt like a filmed play, which is not really what you want. I think I read. Where the fuck did I read this? It was, maybe it was just some um, letterbox review or something that just called it like you know tired albiism or something right, like okay, that. Sure. And I think um, what's her name? In... Sandy Dennis. Yeah, so Sandy Dennis is like one of the main characters, and she's in um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, the film. Is she? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even so, know that. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, and I'd say that's actually not uh, that doesn't feel like a filmed play, but this sort of does. Sounds wicked. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, he made a number of these like very much so filmed plays. They had like sort of limited theatrical releases and were also shown on TV stations. Mm. And yeah, also just experimenting with other forms like opera and directing them on stage. Jimmy Dean, I found so hard to watch, man. Like if I was if I was in the play, I would have had no problem walking out of that shit in five minutes. There's a episode of Peep Show where they're <laughs> sitting watching a play on like a double date. And um, Mark is like, we could be at home watching Heat. (laughs) (laughs) But instead, we've paid and we're watching this. And then they just like get up and leave or whatever. Um, I don't know. I don't really like Heat. But a middle ground between the Heat and Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean would be a nice sort of uh, compromise. (laughs) Sure, sure. I really didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking annoying. I think its representation of a transgender character was um, really interesting, actually. Definitely for the time. Out of the three um... films of his that have transgender characters, (laughs) yeah, it was the least peak. Okay, I haven't seen any of these other films. You have, you've seen California Split. Oh. 
where like the two sex workers that they're like best mates with oh, like, oh, have a date and they're yeah. like oh, don't come to the house because we're seeing a client and then it's like a trans woman or whatever and then they just crash it pretending to be the police yeah and it's that, like that is dread yeah that that person is definitely like the butt of the joke or whatever even though you see that they're so tormented and like so stressed out by the fact that like their cover is being blown and this is like one of the first times where they can actually step out of their house as their true self or whatever it's nasty man it's peak that film is yeah. close to perfect i think <laughs> um and then yeah health... i don't think that's necessarily indictment of the film as much as like the you know society it represents or whatever in yeah sorry in health yeah in, in health, health the other example. which i thought was actually hilarious but um yeah, Glenda Jackson plays a trans woman character who's supposed to be basically like all the political speeches in that film. It's got Lauren Bacall as Eisenhower or like as an analogue for Eisenhower and Glenda Jackson as an analogue of Adelaide Stevenson, who's someone I'd never heard of before. Who was a That was Altman's guy, right? Yeah, he was like a socialist Democrat yeah, yeah. Uh, candidate in the 50s. He almost won twice. Never heard of this guy, really. Like I'd heard the name, but I never didn't really know what he was about or whatever. But I mean, some of the shit he's saying... Some of the shit that Glenda Jackson is saying, channeling Adelaide Stevenson in this film, was very impressive. It's a mad thing to do for, like, using these speeches or sort of characterizations in the context of, like, yeah, it's about, like, a health food convention yeah. or whatever, right? It's such a funny film. And also it's got this villain who's, like, this totally deranged... It's like the guy in the cowboy hat from The Simpsons, like, the oil baron or whatever, mm. where he's, like, in charge and he's, like, controlling the fates of all these characters, but then in the end he's, like the biggest mess or whatever and even though he wins but he's still like much like you could say what happened in america for the last five years or whatever even though they, he was actually winning and like he got what he wanted but you're still like kicking off even more and like you'd never be satisfied hilarious performance from that guy i can't remember what he's called <laughs> also alfred woodard was just hilarious in that oh film. yeah that's cool yeah i i really want to watch this one i believe it's on youtube it's on youtube there's two copies on youtube one is slightly better than the other but that film never got a cinematic release it was made by fox but they didn't even put it out that's crazy. So you're, I think the BFI screening was probably the first screening of health in the UK ever. That's mad. And it's a crazy film. Like, you should watch it. Was it... Uh, well, oh, you didn't see it. I was going to say, I wonder what the copy was like. But please write in if you were there. Yeah. I think the other play adaptation that we both saw was Secret Honor, which we've already sort of spoken about a little bit. But basically for this one, it really was in the wilderness. And it was shot... Was it the University of Michigan? Yeah. And basically all the cast were like, oh, sorry, all the cast. <laughs> There's one person in the film, um, Philip Baker Hall, who plays um, Nixon. And yeah, all the crew were like sort of, yeah, Student. film study students. And they like shot it in like, they made the set in like one of the offices there and yeah. stuff. Super low budget, super wavy film, amazing performance. From Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. yeah, yeah he yeah. absolutely kills it. In a way that like the... um. Because there's the Oliver Stone Nixon film with Anthony Hopkins, which is very like just when this guy was becoming extremely lame and like it was all about like humanizing Nixon. Whereas this is like, I guess he humanizes Nixon or whatever in that it shows him just at his like most vulnerable <laughs> and like deranged. Yeah, because he's just getting drunk and he's like spilling all the beans to his like dictaphone or whatever. But he knows that he's being watched by the CIA or whatever, and he knows that like yeah, they fucked him. Yeah, all. and the way they make this interesting beyond this virtuosic performance, it's yeah, just like through very inventive camera work. Mm. We've been like a very limited space as well. 
and the use of these like sort of TV monitor screens where I can't remember if he's like watching old speeches or mm. like if it's him. It's also his personal like, surveillance system or whatever where he's yeah he's yeah because like Watergate yeah, obviously yeah. he's bugging everything and then yeah, like, yeah, he yeah, yeah. even bugged himself because he was so paranoid. But um, this like yeah just provides like another level of like texture and you know intermediality or whatever yes. and like all this like. Wavy shit. Goddard wishes he made Secret Honor Man still yeah. <laughs> to this day, honestly. Like, it's a up. proper goated one. And yeah, so interesting in how it compares to like, yeah, these ensemble films, which we've mentioned sort of as like one of his sort mm. of hallmarks. The fact that he can make such a captivating film with one actor. I mean, I mean, I've been to a one person show before in my life, and you know. It's sort of hard work, I guess. We went to a really cool one, actually, when you were in Edinburgh. Yeah. It was called Verde. And that it was, was about great, um, the sort of disappearings in um, Pinochet. Under, under yeah. Pinochet, yeah. But, I mean, as a concept, like, it's fucking hard work. But this is a really cinematic film as well, mm. despite being, like, one of his, like, proper plays on screen mm. works. But, yeah, I think that's an extensive enough treatment of that as, like, a stage in his career. Unless you have anything you want to... <laughs> no, I mean, I don't wish that we'd postpone this podcast by a few days so we could watch streamers and fool for love. <laughs> so streamers is, like, about, um, I guess, African-American and gay soldiers? Mm-hmm. Is that the concept? And, yeah, a social issue movie or whatever. I assume it's quite, like, come back to the five and dime because it's, like, the year after. Fool for love is, like, a Sam Shepard, like, incest... Yeah. Um, drama. Could be hot. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't trying to watch pre, it. Pre Brownsville girl. Let's take a break. Cool. The price of bread may worry some. It don't worry me. The tax relief may never come. It don't worry me. The economy's depressed, not me. My spirit's high as it can be And you may say that I ain't free Don't worry me Don't worry me Don't worry me You may say that I ain't free Don't worry me So I'm not sure how I managed it, but as you've heard, I have watched Quintet, but I haven't seen Shortcuts, which most people would probably say is his best film you in that camp it's definitely highly esteemed and yeah i is sort of his magnum opus to a Mm. certain extent as a sort of culmination of the sort of ensemble film sort of mode in which he operates also as like a literary adaptation or a response to literature more like sort of conversation with a type of literature Mm. shortcuts is made up of i think eight short stories by the uh, American short story writer Raymond Carver, who um, was dead by this point. But um, I think Altman worked quite close with his wife um, right. in terms of like developing it and like sort of, you know, responding to like the vibe of this guy, which is like, yeah, I guess just like... I have seen Birdman, which is also a response to the vibe of this guy. And that was ass, but I think this is going to be better. Which guy? Carver. Carver, yeah. Is it's it all, it's all centered around like a performance of a Raymond Carver play. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I did. Oh, wait. and I've seen this Australian film, Jindabyne, which is one of those films that my parents have seen like 30 times, which has Gabriel Byrne and Laura Linney and is an adaptation of one of the stories in Shortcuts about the like fishing trip. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah that film was good. Cool. What's, what's that called? Jindabyne. Cool. Maybe Brandon's seen it or any of our other Australian listeners. Yeah, I'd be interested to check that out. I thought we were um, Raymond Carver, sort of. <laughs> I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, the vibe is, well, sort of quotidian, uh, like sort of banality and like sort of chaos and sort of chance element of everyday life. Yeah. And that's also a theme that's in other Altman works, especially, you know, someone like California Split, which is explicitly about gambling. There's this essay he wrote called Risk, which is so good. Altman? Yeah, I'm oh, going to get a quote from it, actually. Hang on. But yeah, it's a similar theme to that, is it? The sort of risk, chance, irrational element. Yeah, for sure. And how um, these different sort... I think he sort of manufactures the relationship between these characters and these short stories and the scenarios in them to, yeah, sort of show a tapestry of um, life in LA. Yeah. I guess like these like tapestry painting, these sort of analogies are quite frequently applied to his work in that they're often quite open-ended we haven't said painting because you've heard enough of us talking about that shite (laughs) (laughs) never talking about paintings on this podcast again yeah never looking at another Um, painting again (laughs) apart from when i'm Um, watching three women which has crazy paintings in it so true um let's get this quote from risk is it an essay called risk in esquire october 1993 i've gambled all my life but i've managed to gamble within my loss range i've been lucky because i haven't been careful my attitude is why not Professional gamblers are the most uninteresting gamblers of all because they're like the banks. They play the odds and cut it right out of the middle. They don't even think about the long shot. Absolutely boring. I put them alongside the studios. We don't rely enough on instinct in this culture. Sometimes you just feel the heat and you know the fucking number is going to come out. <laughs> and finally it does. Waiting for it is part of the joy or whatever. Which is some, some stoner shit again, but it's also like opening yourself up to the mystic possibility. That's why, you know, the ending of California Split is so irresponsible, but it's also so sick. <laughs> or like to act like there's something numinous going on beyond the meat and potatoes of yeah the stars i mean it's about stripes. um george is it george Stigall? is that yeah is that his name he's like on a sort of streak basically yeah. and that's what it's about they exist man you know you do that you win one scratch card and then you win all the scratch cards that month and you don't win again for like two years yeah is that the same as shortcuts then is that the same as the the plague of frogs in magnolia or whatever then well, it ends with an earthquake. Does it? Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, it's a hard film to talk about because there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely that like sort of ironic everydayness and like all these like complex human emotions. There are lots of great performances in it. Lily Tomlin and Tom Waits play. Uh, How is Tom Waits, man? Um, <laughs> a sort of couple. Um, yeah, he plays a sort of piece of shit really yeah. in it. Um, like a sort of he plays a piece of shit in his music driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess a lot of the film is like how these characters, like when it comes down to it, respond to this like cataclysmic event. Even though it happens like right at the end, so we don't see the aftermath. We see more like how their characters have been built up and how that mm. manifests itself in that episode, rather than like the aftermath of it. Cause it's like right at the end, unlike I don't know Force Majeure or something. Um, but it's the same sort of. That's the same as um. Nashville though isn't it because like Robin Wood talks about that film as a disaster movie right in the mm. context of, like the towering inferno and like he makes it he really demystifies that film a lot by making it seem just like 
Yeah, all these films had like stacked casts and like an insane <laughs> degree of like cast of characters or whatever in them. He said like Airport 75 or whatever. These were huge films and like he just analyzes Nashville in the context of that or whatever. But like the kind of the piece of political theater or whatever slash just tragedy that happens at the end of Nashville. I think it's sort of nauseated by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to entertained by it or whatever. But. And then being like, oh, and Pauline Kale came out of it saying that's she so was crazy. elated. That's so crazy. <laughs> I've never felt more, you know, every time I watch Nashville, my jaw is further to the floor at the end or I'm just so depressed by the it. The end is, yeah, jaw dropping and controversial as well. Because yeah. people sort of asked him, like, when like John Lennon got killed, for example, oh, would you feel responsible for sort of manufacturing this scenario you think like, Mark, is like you think Mark David Chapman was watching Nashville I don't know yeah. I don't think so um, <laughs> I think that's a stupid that's stupid to be honest yeah personally. well for sure but I feel like <laughs> oh yeah he invented he glamorized shooting yeah that's not like the takeaway at all I don't think it's misogynistic or whatever though or like what I don't think that specific thing Instead of assassinating the political candidate, you never see the political candidate and the person who gets assassinated is like the really fucked up, sad, like suffering woman uh, Yeah, you say that. I, I, re- I can't remember who it was by, so I'll have to find a citation and just oh. drop it in. But um, it's an article about uh, the sort of, the way, the sort of gender dialectic in Nashville yeah. and how even though like country music is traditionally like super patriarchal mm-hmm. and you know has like very conservative values that are expressed like in the songs sung by the men in this film yeah especially um oh, what's his fucking name keith carradine uh, or Nader. haven hamilton yeah you know very like nationalistic and you know patriarchal basically and he's um, the one but, uh, the... he is emasculated despite like the and her manager character are like emasculated by the um the sort of chaos of the assassination mm. and like but the woman who was forced to strip like 20 minutes ago at a fucking jack ruby party or whatever is also denied that but again so much of it is about people who are trying to be stars or whatever that's so true about the tunes because that it don't worry me song which is like the fucking shit that pauline kale walked out of the theater elated like singing singing like send them home with like a good tune but it has to be ironic it's like. a song about like tax relief and stuff <laughs> like in the verses like maybe tax relief is gonna come one day i don't know yeah. <laughs> but it's you know that haven hamilton guy telling everyone oh this isn't dallas this is nashville like someone starts singing or whatever let's let's forget about this horrible assassination or whatever that's the thing that really shook me to my core uh spoiler alert sorry yeah it's sorry, got a bit spoilery all, su- all of a sudden what other films have sick endings that we can spoil right now <laughs> yeah I, ju- I did jump straight to the ending of shortcuts but um i guess that is like a completely manufactured element of it as a way of like sort of unifying all those plot strands that are not really centered around something like nashville where they're all like at this uh political rally at the end or whatever um yeah, I, as an ensemble film, though, 10 out of 10. Like, really, it's got loads of great performances and it's 
really entertaining. That's such like a Greggy review, isn't it? How, how many minutes? <laughs> how many minutes is it? Oh yeah, fuck! It's really long. Yeah. This one's really long. It's I think it's actually over for three hours essentially. More bang for your buck that way. Yeah. More bang for your roof such. In terms of other big ensemble ones, I guess Mash sort of counts. This is what I was going to say, right? Is that I often sell Altman to people. I have done in the past by saying like, oh. It's like The Simpsons, in it? Like, yeah, that's problem. definitely the closest analogy that comes to mind when I'm watching these films. Definitely, I think. Both for the attitude and the scope. MASH is, I guess, like that. MASH is the nastiest film. Yeah, I had no pre-existing relationship with MASH. I think earlier generations would have watched it more on TV, I think. TV show uh, is better. Is it, actually? I used to like the TV show. So he's... The, both that and Gossip Park have, like, spun, like really successful middle of the road TV show adaptations of like Altman's like pretty edgy and like rad work. You What's know? the other Downton Abbey? Like Downton Abbey, Abbey yeah, mm, yeah. Yeah. Both written by the same, by Julian Fellows or whatever. Yeah. Like. Uh, Mash isn't. That was written by... Got a weird name. He's got like some sort of CIA name. I he was one of the Hollywood 10. Yeah. It's an adaptation of a, a sort of autobiographical war account from the Korean War and... Ring Lord Nagini. Ring Lord, yeah, yeah. yeah, that that is a crazy. It's a pinch name, isn't name. It? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, well, it's, uh, <laughs> you've broken it. Yeah, um, I don't know. I I read the California Split was the first one that uses the the mad sound technique. That was the one that he he had to develop a new amount of tracks. Whereas I right, think... whereas in this one, it just literally seems like people are talking over each other, mm. and there's no uh, adjustment. So, it's, no it, has a, it has a crazy effect. Quite a misogynistic and, as you said, nasty film. And racist. Um, and ra- yeah, and obviously racist. But also, ironically, in the spirit of, like, sort of Vietnam protest, like, yes. mood. Zeitgeist. Well, he apparently, he didn't really make it clear that it's the Korean War, like, at any point. There's no, like, yeah. direct references to, like, things that happened in the Korean War or, like, even place names. Exactly. It's just, uh, Ameri- like quite obnoxious Americans, the main ones, Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould, in, yeah, like an Asian country. I think it was shot in California or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) The last third of this film is like a football game and stuff like that. Yeah. (laughs) He said, like, I love making MASH because of the operations. Like, I never thought I'd get to have cool operation scenes in a film ever. Mm. Like, it was just a time where, like, you were first allowed to do that. And apparently that's what, like, they wanted to take out the most but then mm. it was also the bits that like played the best at like test audiences and stuff like that yeah i mean it's de-romanticizing the uh war in pretty much every way yeah. including like you know injuries to our boys oh, or whatever yeah. you know <laughs> inverted quote marks um there are a couple of you know we said gosford park is one of the sort of essential ensemble films of his oeuvre there are a couple more big ones from the late stage Definitely. Just one thing. Robert Altman's son wrote the lyrics to Suicide is Painless. The <laughs> when famous he was 13. Scene. He was 13 years old. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. What would... <laughs> Good song. Yeah, I think we're going to make a little transition, I guess, from ensemble films as a category of analysis to sort of music with both of these being... The last um, two. Yeah, The Company from 2003 and A Prairie Home Companion about the last night of a sort of live audience radio show recorded in a theatre. Two very different films, 
the company is yeah about uh what is it like the jo- Joffrey Joffrey Ballet Ballet yeah I, I think in it's Chicago. in Chicago yeah and that was like written by Neve Campbell from Scream from Scream yeah really interesting sort of passion project what a ledge of things and she killed it in this film I thought she danced amazingly and she played a pretty interesting character but I mean obviously I, I wrote the script on the Robert Altman film it's like I don't know yeah, I think it was actually written by um, Barbara Turner, who wrote the Pollock film. Ooh. Did you watch that? Yeah, Pollock film was good. Man. Yeah, 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 but apparently it was a big research project. I think Neve Campbell was a dancer right. when she was younger, so that's how she like sort of performed alongside these like professional ballet dancers. It's a really interesting film, and okay, the maddest thing about it potentially, with a lot of crazy technical things going on throughout it. Well, there's very little dialogue. And James Franco is like the second build, right? And I think he turns up like, He's like an hour 50 minutes film, in. Yeah. And they basically, him and Neve Campbell's characters have like a romance. But they also cut like pretty much all the dialogue out of that. Yeah. So no, it's just full of these like weird like <laughs> lacunae and like elisions while depicting, yeah, these different productions and, like, the injuries and, you know, people having to be substituted in and out of these productions. Malcolm McDowell plays the director, and he's great. He was so good. And I thought I was just about to say Terrence Stamp was wicked in this film. Of course, Malcolm McDowell (laughs) was so good in this film. You didn't really... No, okay, okay. I I I wouldn't go that far. I thought it was good. It was in the bottom half of my Altman ranking. Yeah. Whereas it was not for you. It's a cool film, man. Like, I'd wanted to watch it for ages because I knew there was going to be something mad to it. Like, I mean, Fred Wiseman gets that, talked about a lot guy, yeah, yeah. in the context of this film. And it's, it's true. Like, well, it has a clear, like, sort of observational quality to it. Yeah. So the last two films he made were, like, sort of fictionalized Frederick Wiseman films. Like, yeah. Which is cool. Looking at, like, institutions. But the majority of the performers in the company were the dancers from mm. that company, mm. non professional actors. And, um, and about 40 minutes of this film is ballet yeah <laughs> so yeah i feel like the ballet gets worse throughout as it gets like more modern what they're doing right van dyke parks did the music as he did for popeye however so presumably that some of this stuff when it's not like bark and stuff they're dancing to i think the ballet is like okay so this sort of like blends reality and fiction right so i think the choreographer that like brings his ballet is like he's a real guy right yeah 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 and, like, this is about a real ballet that they did. So the music is from that. And it's by, you know, Song Cycle, Pet Sounds, etc. Mm. Son of Man from the Walk Hard soundtrack. Like, a true legend. But, like, I thought it was going to be the film that got me into ballet or something like that. And I'd finally get it. But I thought it was whack. I think it's more, like, well, for, it's more about show business and, like, performance. It, You know, you can make the exact same film about a football team, right? Sure. Sure. Um, and it would like feel the exact same, right? Where the dance scenes are like matches, and then imagine if um, got, like the training. Imagine if and... Altman made Sunderland Till I Die, the fictionalized sort of Hollywood version. I guess he's basically initiated this as a practice. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even really spoken about like Tanner eighty eight and Tanner on Tanner and stuff like that. Like I wasn't even joking. Like he. He invented prestige TV and mockumentary. <laughs> yeah. And like sort of political parody or whatever. I don't know. Wag the dog, Bullworth, etc. You preferred A Prairie Home Companion to B 
the company. I saw a Fairy Hunt Companion when I was like 13 or whatever I must have been when it came out in the cinema. And like, it might have even been my first Altman film. Yeah. So it was some sort of Oscar film that, you know, you go and see. I love the nonce Garrison Keillor and his sense of humor. No, I mean, I'm not familiar with the Perry Hunt Companion. This, like all the other films of his that have music in them, like you're seriously like there watching five minute long musical sequences. And like at some point you're like, is this supposed to be? Is this supposed to be good or is this supposed to be really bad or do I just not like this or just like Robert Altman really like this? Like usually I don't have a problem with this, but in the, I don't know. This film has a cool cast, although I found Meryl Streep really, really irritating actually. And John like, C. Riley and Woody Harrelson oh. singing cowboys or whatever are great. Virginia Madsen, terrific. As the angel of death or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting sort of inclusion as <laughs> a plot device in a seemingly I guess like straightforward exploration of again like an institution a so, showbiz yeah. thing it's meant to be like the last night so there is like sort of symbolic or allegorical quality to it but it's still a bit offbeat to include I know Altman doesn't really talk about films that much he doesn't say he's not one of these people he's like oh yeah I saw da 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 and then I had to remake it or whatever in some Tarantino sense but I reckon he saw Goodbye Dragon <laughs> well um, yeah, yeah he kept on remaking it I reckon he saw Goodbye Dragon in, though, before making Prairie Home Companion, because it does seem to have that sort of spirit, even though it's got a lot of dialogue in it. But it still has all that visual splendour that you'd associate with Robert Altman. The dense frames, the ones, the, the shots Big of tracking the... tracking um, shots with people walking around talking. Yeah, and like the, you know, West Wing or whatever, but no... Well, it sort of is like that, actually. It very much so is like that. <laughs> and it's a bit like, <laughs> it's a bit smarmy yeah. as well, isn't it? So it I think... really is like that. I guess it is like the West Wing, yeah. But I mean, Aaron Sorkin probably couldn't handle Nashville, though he probably thinks it's too rude <laughs> about our institutions. Or whatever. Um, yeah, the the backstage scenes when it's like the what Rhonda and Le- Yolanda and Lindsay Lohan as Meryl Streep's daughter or whatever. I don't know. But those dressing room scenes are fucking amazing. Actually, the frames are so cool. The use of mirrors and those slow mm. zooms. So cool. That's not, you know, this film just has a total spirit to it. You know, I'm sh- he was like on oxygen when he was directing it or whatever. And he had like Paul Thomas Anderson standing behind him yeah. in case he like croaked and couldn't finish the movie or whatever. Yeah, it's crazy. It's hard to stress how old he was like by this point. <laughs> like when in the 70s, when he was like starting to make like big commercial features or indie features or whatever yeah. you want to frame it. He was, yeah, was in his mid, mid 40s. So... Yeah, and he, like, drank loads. He had, like, a heart transplant, like, when was it? Before Gosford Park. Yeah, that's... um, So, yeah, really impressive. Well, well done, that. that. (laughs) Well done. But um, it's a nice last film. It might be one of my favourite last films. It's better than Seven Women or whatever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's talk about how they compare, man. I think one thing that really jumps out in... Altman is like his desire even if it doesn't like run across his whole filmography mm. to use like a stock company sure and to like I wouldn't say it's necessarily like intertextual but like sort of build these like sort of character tropes and like you know use characters and and then to like go against them and also this antagonistic relationship with writers like all, <laughs> yeah, that, all, the, yeah, yeah. all the fucking writers that Allman worked with you fell out with all of them yeah they all had a very grudging relationship <laughs> with him in the oral biography for example there are lots of 
sort of rueful and you know i guess these people ultimately will probably be quite happy that like they were well it was often the, the best film they ever worked on the yeah way. but still like <laughs> disgruntled um there's an amazing article written by the original screenwriter of Bruce McLeod. McLeod. that's a crazy and it was like in thing. the new york times in like the 70s around when the film came out and he's he wasn't like, even invited to the premiere or whatever. Yeah, he was <laughs> he was really mad. <laughs> Shouldn't um, be laughing, but you know. Yeah. What are screenwriters anyway? Prairie Home Companion was interesting, but yeah, as with all of these films that have music in them, it has this tension or he's like kind of taking the piss. Well, like if you don't like the music, either you don't like the style or you love the style, you're going to be upset either way, I think, because it's got such a curious tone. Even compared to like, a mighty wind or um pop star or walk hard or mm. one of these sort of musical comedy films where the songs are like parodies but usually they're better i think whereas like this certainly has like a homespun like quality they're not like written by committee or yeah i think the singing cowboys or I, I can't remember their um moniker but yeah, that's my favourite shit that's in, in the film. I think. Bad joke song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And the version of Red River Valley did make me cry. Classic. Lindsay Lohan, Frankie and Johnny was interesting. As well. <laughs> but this is a man where, like, yeah, the music, most of the best moments of his films are involving music, I would argue. Absolutely. You think about the cabaret singer in California Split or whatever that opens the film. Mm. That is so weird and jarring, like, or... Um, I know you wanted to talk about the beginning of Brewster McLeod. <laughs> the, probably the maddest opening to any film ever. So the film set in the Houston the Astrodome. Astrodome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And much like Kanye West, it's yeah. about someone who <laughs> lives in the stadium to perform some great act in their life. I don't know. I prefer Brewster McLeod to Kanye West as a person. And Brewster McLeod kills some people in some weird ways. But this film opens, yeah, it's got like the title card and it's like, song by francis scott key who is the person who wrote the american the stars and stripes <laughs> and you've got uh, margaret hamilton the wicked witch yeah. of the west <laughs> singing the worst version of the american national anthem you've ever heard and it's so funny man. bad singing is a essential quality in a lot of these films i think you mentioned nashville um i was so impressed by how L- lily tomlin could sing so badly in two completely different ways in a very <laughs> companion in Nashville. Um, it's not just like songs though. A lot of jazz in these films, um, in like these like us, you've mentioned like sort of radio spots mm. and the way that that's used sort of um, in these scenes. Kansas City from like the mid nineties is like intercut with um, like a bunch of like modern, I, I guess they were like musicians based in Kansas, like playing historical jazz figures um just like Like coleman hawkins and stuff like that right exactly charlie parker yeah Yeah. and those scenes are amazing there's also jazz 34 have you i couldn't find like a full you made that at the same time as kansas city didn't you yeah and i think that again is just like that's like a proper extendo where you're just plunged into the knees like and you get to to jam with you know these players aria is an interesting one from, um, I think, actually the same year as... Fuck, it's one of the big flops. 87. Beyond Therapy. Beyond Therapy, right. Um, so this is like an anthology film with like bits by like Jarman, Ken Russell, Goddard, 
He was a fiend for the anthology movement. Yeah. I mean, you always had something ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This one is like all about like opera. And Altman's one is set in the 18th century. And I think it's like Rameau, like one of his like suites or whatever. Oh, I thought you meant when you were describing it before, I thought you meant like the concert was Rameau. Like... Yeah, yeah. No, it sort of is as well. <laughs> yeah, but the pun definitely holds up. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's like set in the early 18th century. And it's like, um, there's a title card that's like, oh... In the 18th century, sometimes, like, the lunatics were let out of the asylum to go to, like, a concert. So it's a very, like, exaggerated sort of, like, Hogarthian mm. scene of, like, you know, all this, like, mad stuff happening while this music's being played. Sounds like Tommy. Yeah. There's a really Tommy-esque number in Popeye, which I guess we should talk about the music in that Which now. one? I think it's Tommy-esque? I think it's the I am or I am one. I am that's what like, I like, got loads of like... <laughs> it's like the most like rocky number. And I was when we watched it together, I looked over to you and I was like, oh, I'm watching Tommy again, aren't I? It's fucking um, Emmett Core cinema we're yeah. talking right here. Also, yeah, the music in Popeye is just crazy. That one actually is a musical in the sort of conventional sense rather than just having sort of diegetic music or non-diegetic music. You don't know that. That could just be what Sweet Haven's like, man. People, <laughs> people, people could just be singing. There's not that yeah. much singing in the Popeye cartoons as well, which I find interesting. But he, mm, like Harry Nilsson... It's not meant to be an adaptation of the cartoon, though, as much as the comic strip. But... Can't That's what I'm no, I meant. <laughs> I meant the comic strip, but a lot of the Harry Nilsson lyrics are all taken from the comic strip. Cool. And Harry Nilsson killed it with the songwriting, innit? Like, some okay. of my favorite songs of all time are in that. There's a very like sort of naive quality to the lyrics, yeah. which is like very charming. And Shelley Duvall, like she kills it. Um, yeah, he's large. <laughs> <laughs> large. No, she best performance in a musical we're recording this on gene kelly's birthday and i'm sorry king but you're not as good as shelly deval in popeye no <laughs> one is no one is um there's other ones as well though still yeah in terms of like non-digestive music i.e just like scoring mm. um i don't know we talk about like how he uses sound in general in terms of dialogue and sound effects but if you think about the more like psychological ones like three women and images they're very wavy scores i think john williams did the images one and there's like a japanese percussionist as well doing yeah yeah yeah. cool shit john williams did some great work with altman like in the long goodbye where it's fucking just that song appearing in like every different possible context you know, again and again and again. It's even mm. like her doorbell or whatever. Is that John Williams? Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um, the Leonard Cohen songs in McCabe and Mrs. Miller are just... Pff, I think it was the first time that I actually like engaged with those tunes. Yeah. Um, and the, it's crazy. We're talking classics from songs by Leonard Cohen. like uh, Yeah. The Strange Song, Sisters, Sisters of, Mercy. of Mercy, Winter Lady. Yeah. But you feel like they're... He's writing the film out of the songs or whatever, where like the, the well, lyrics... Apparently the Stranger song is about um, the man with the golden arm or some shit. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the tone is just crazy, I think. Especially the the showdown on that bridge that you see. Oh, fucking hell. We'd have to do a whole episode on McCabe and Mr. Yeah, I think that's the... Yeah, as I we will. said, it's the best one. We could talk about it for two hours and be doing it dirty, to be honest, because... But yeah, I mean, the point is... The We'd have to do the McCabe and Mrs. Miller minute, right? Where, like, you do a, a podcast. 
<laughs> we were talking fun. about um, First Cow as well, and you know, in that one, Stephen Mountbus plays like out tune violin in like mm. a sort of idiosyncratic way. You also get a lot of like cool, like diegetic, like um, you have exactly like fiddle thing. playing in the bar scenes and stuff yeah. like that. And he's getting better at the fiddle, like in every scene, every time he comes <laughs> back, he's like his. His playing is a bit more expressive, or whatever. Even the Ivan Novello bit in um, Gossip Park, I don't like that tune or whatever. But the characters are so into it. Yeah, you know? they're like, wow. <laughs> well, music is like an essential ingredient in life, and if Alban is like trying to capture that, then it's something he's really a master at. I think. Yeah, he's just got such a unique approach to it. I think I don't know anyone. Maybe Jean Renoir kind of sometimes has those kind of moments. Um, Dance macabre in a. <laughs> The rules of the game. Hey. Uh, obviously, a very close analogy for Gosford Park. For Popeye, yeah. For, um, <laughs> for Quintet. Oh my god. So, for shortcuts, there's uh, obviously loads of characters. One of them is a cellist played by uh, Laurie Singer, who was uh-huh. like, you know, a real cellist or whatever. Her mum's meant to be like a club singer, and there's the sort of tension there but again there are some great concert scenes and sort of rehearsal scenes something we see in the company in a perfect couple that is about um like a singer in a band as well this is like a central aspect of it as like a lifestyle and you know but do you get the do you think that he hates music is what i'm trying to do you say think he does it's just like they're never the i don't even know what what it is about his use of music, but it's always, I guess it's like some Brechtian shit or whatever, right? Where it's always the most alienating, like you think you get to know these people and then you see them in a totally different light, like when they're singing or like performing. As with most of these. Yeah, films. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think of these films as Brechtian because they do sort of operate within the system, even if it is in like a subversive way, oh. which we've already, already problematized, but... It's straight up pension because he has all those fucking stupid, like, yeah. punny songs, yeah, like, in yeah, all yeah. of his books. That's, that is so true, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I clocked that. Yeah. Live or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> in the... He's definitely pension pilled or whatever, this guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm yeah, true, dear listener. musicians big time, actually. <laughs> that's really, really true. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's like affectionate, and it like shows like I don't think it's vulnerability and like subjectivity as well in an interesting way. Yeah, I don't think it's condescending. I think like even I'm Easy, which I know you don't like as a song or whatever, but like you can imagine that he liked Towns Van Zant and was down for like he had all the the actors write their own songs in Nashville as well. Yeah, for the most part, which is yeah. interesting. But it's essential. Number one song out of these. Films Everything is food. No, it's um, <laughs> exercise your right to vote from health. What's yours? I think it's got to be the strangest song, man. Even though it's like that sort of goes against the spirit of what we've been saying because it's non-diegetic. But I think just the way it's used complements the imagery like so well mm. that it's like sort of uses film in an interesting sort of synthetic way. I also like... It don't worry me out of Nashville because I think it's really jokes. It's so funny when he gets up to perform and everyone's like chanting it at him, like "Do this one," and he's like, "Oh, you really like that song?" Oh. Clearly, it would have it was a hit. Well, I mean, that's that's Robin Wood's <laughs> issue of it, right? That it's like nihilistic, basically. It's my favorite thing about it. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Thank you.
we could literally go on for the rest of the year just talking about our favorite bits in Robert Altman movies. But we've got to wrap it up somehow. So we're going to do the quintets. We're going to do the Altman top fives. Sam, what is your fifth favorite Robert Altman pellicula? Well, my fifth favorite three days ago or whenever I wrote this list was Nashville from 1975. It's a bit of a par, man. Pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> Where's it on your list? <laughs> Not even in there. Um, yeah. I feel like we've exhausted Nashville. Um, we're never a, exhausted. We're, we're not done talking about this film on this podcast, man. It's I feel be- like we never even broached the surface of it, really. Um, I feel like it is a film that one could easily write a book about because it's so rich. And yeah, just a real experience. Also watching it in the cinema at the BFI season was just oh, a fucking treat, to be honest. I've watched it loads of times in the last two years or whatever. I've probably seen it like five times and that rate probably won't go down. It's a great film to watch, even if it makes me scared and sad. Much like Zola, <laughs> the last film we watched together, which is a, you know, oh a great God. film to watch. You're not talking about a film for the 21st century, are you? I'm saying, you know, they're both great films to watch as non-Americans, whatever, because you can just be like, this is a film about America, easy, yeah. like... And then you can just box everything off, all the yeah, like problems yeah, and issues yeah. with it and be like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, America. But I hate the UK films. But every time I watch Nashville, it's still my favorite bit every time, which is um, at that grand old Oak Free uh, sequence where Karen Black, who actually kills it in the film and like has just the best tunes to me personally, I think. And the record that came out recently was amazing. Um, but yeah, when it's Barbara Baxley the wife of Haven Hamilton talking to Geraldine Chaplin, the BBC reporter, and the BBC reporter spent her whole time like looking for answers or pretending to look for answers. And then the one time that like someone actually says something about like America or politics, which is like her talking about how personally affronted she was by like the Kennedy assassinations mm. or whatever. And she's like, I didn't even think you'd like the Kennedys or whatever because you're from the South or whatever. But then she's just like, as soon as she starts talking about like, anti-Catholicism, she's just like, looks over and like she doesn't even care anymore or whatever and she's like a journalist Fire. yeah such an interesting character well i guess both of them but specifically the geraldine chaplin one which like she's not actually meant to work for the bbc or whatever the The british broadcasting company she does look a lot like her dad which i'd never really clocked before look like it's like he was in the film or whatever emmett what was your number five Altman film if we're going to recommend them what have we got? My number five was the film he made after Nashville on the bicentennial of the United States of America. Buffalo Bill and the Indian starring Paul Newman. A radical film, a really cool film. Um, I've been led to believe it was just a bit of a chore or a bit of a slog or just like him making the same point over and over again, which is the chief problem I had with Quintet. Mm. But I actually loved this film. Yeah. Visually a feast for the eyes, like maybe his best framing and like best like corralling of set and cast into these like mm. you know like well, takes, it's literally that isn't it it because takes where all, they're all sort of penned in in the sort of spectacular of american history but it takes where like the ending of nashville like and goes from there and gets more grandiose like from that but it kind of made me feel like the watching it, i was like oh the man who shot liberty valance i was like, oh this is such a you know awesome subversive film and like it makes that film look pathetic. It makes all Westerns look pathetic in the context of it because it's like, they're all just a lie, which is what The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance is about. But I mean, this is way more aggressive for sort of expose <laughs> of the foundational myths of the USA. Great performances. Also, as an ensemble film, 
Much like um, Nashville, as I said the, the year before, it's got Geraldine Chaplin again. Here's Annie Oakley, is Annie Oakley, the famous sharpshooter. Paul Newman is great as Bill Cody. And there's a great sort of monologue towards the end, which sort of anticipates secret honour in its sort of hauntedness and um, sort of totally. dissolution of the psyche. An astonishing sequence. And yeah, I just thought it was like really entertaining and a perfect interrogation of how American history is sort of like a pageant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brilliant film and I think extremely underrated. I'm gutted I didn't catch it at the BFI because I really wanted it. The BFI to. knew what they were doing because they put that on during an England game as well, I swear. Absolute piss takers. Sam, what's your fourth favourite Altman film? I'm going to say, I've got shortcuts written here, cool. but I'm going to go for a... <laughs> can I do it? There's no rules here. I'm going to go for a joint favourite of Shortcuts and Kansas City. Nice. In fact, what I should have done is replace Kansas City as my number two, but doesn't matter. Shortcuts, I guess I spoke about it at length already, but really it is an extremely rich film. It's pretty dread. The characters are often quite peak in it. But it's sort of Altman at his best, showing like a sort of world. And Kansas City sort of does the same, I think way more than Thieves Like Us for the sort of... I think it's set in the 30s, maybe I'm completely wrong. I, th- I think it is set in the 30s. I was going to say the Depression era, but I was questioning myself. Um, it's just a really great period piece. Way more Pynchon-esque than Thieves Like Us has a way more interesting main character Jennifer mm. Jason Lee's one her relationship with another main character played by I think Miranda Richardson is really interesting deals with drug usage in an interesting way yeah also pretty underrated I think what's the name of Harry Belafonte's character in that film again something crazy <sighs> seldom seen <laughs> yeah that's a great name awesome um embarrassing that it came to you before it came to me what is your fourth favourite Altman film? My fourth favourite. Before doing this podcast, it definitely would have been my number one. But I've had to think about his filmography a lot. Um, <laughs> probably going to come back up. It is The Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. written by Lee Brackett, based off The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. Yeah, she she also wrote The Big Sleep. Right? Yeah. It's crazy. 20 years apart. Yeah. He described it as Rip Van Marlowe or whatever. It's like he straight up just wakes up in 1973. Mm. Yeah, I just adore this film. I think it's perfect. I think Sterling Hayden's performance is like probably the deepest. You know, I, I guess I'm obsessed with Sterling Hayden. You can uh, mm. subscribe to the Patreon if you want to hear more about that or whatever. But yeah, everything about this, the fucking Bugs Bunny-ness of Elliot Gould in this, you know, with his like external monologue, just mm. go in the whole film, which is also a case in California Split to like a hilarious degree and, yeah. and MASH yeah. and Popeye. <laughs> um, yeah. but characters talking to themselves again you never see it like that you never see it in such a pleasurable jokes entertaining context I don't know The Long Goodbye is Tupang Vilmos that shot of you know when the dude's drowning himself and you just see Elliot Gould like behind the glass or whatever but he's shooting the glass and that yes unbelievable and it sounded like the production was just insane <laughs> chaotic the hash was loud yeah, yeah. But that's why Sterling Hayden was so crazy because he was bunning, right? Yeah. Apparently he literally went insane making the film. It's also a really unpleasant film. Friend of the pod, Tom, gave it a really good review on Letterboxd but said it was like just too deep to the women in the film and I think fair enough to be honest. But Oh yeah, is that another bit of Coca-Cola product placement? Oh man. Very deep. Yeah. 
but you know i'd say the same thing about inherent vice which is set in exactly the same time which is like mm. has a bunch of misogyny in it you know but <laughs> the hippie culture and california culture at that time was not perfect it was not a good place to be sam what's your number three i'm gonna go for the company i reckon i was like quite surprised and taken by it and as an interrogation of performance, which is something that we see throughout a lot of these films, it's pretty singular. The fact that it's so unreliant on dialogue is mm. an extremely striking feature. Maybe in the future I'll be thinking like, why did I say this? <laughs> but I don't know. I Maybe it's also a bit of recency bias. But yeah, a really interesting film. And yeah, the documentary quality to it, which you produces a slightly different style to what you see in some of the other ones as well. Yeah, I think it's an intriguing film and definitely an underseen one based on letterbox statistics or whatever. That bit with the umbrellas is like the best. Yeah, I was saying to you, I tried to take some like screenshots of this, but it's all about what it looks like in motion as like a <laughs> filmic experience. You know, it's not like a beautiful image in and of itself. Um, I think that's... Again, like an interesting aspect of it. That's a perfect way to lead into my number three. Yeah, what have we got? From 1980, it's Popeye, the man who hates spinach. <laughs> this film is the best. I love it. it. Takes where Jacques Tati left off and made that shit even better, you know. I hate Robin Williams. Like, I don't like any other film that he's in at all, pretty much. But my God, does he kill it in this film, in his first screen role. Mm. I just love the whole thing. I love that, you know, compared to his work with extras in a lot of other films where they sort of blend in and like, you know, you hear stories of him like walking down, like who wants a line today? Who wants a line today or whatever. But in Popeye, because it's so methodical and meticulous is a crazy word to use about like a notoriously like inflated production or whatever, where everyone was just doing gear and like mm. no one had any clue what was going on. And, like the Libyan army were on set all the time. Yeah. But it's better than any stage musical or whatever. He was trying to make a new kind of film and he succeeded. And like compared to these fucking Marvel films, man, like it it has so much more to it, you know, so much more pleasure to it to me. Where like you have all these characters who don't even say anything, but they have roles and like yeah. features and like they enhance the story like so much by just like their reaction. Yeah, I mean, they're almost like props, but... In a sort of physical comedy way, but almost. Acting so hard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> everyone is going so hard, which I guess is like what seeing Broadway shows is about, right? Mm, but I, mm. I don't do that. I'm not about to start doing that either. But I'll go see Popeye anytime a screening. I think it's the coolest, funnest film. I think, you know. There are so many great bits, man. I'm mainly thinking about physical comedy, but there's one bit where he first like has a fight with Bluto. And he like rolls down the stairs. Oh yeah, um, but it's like a like a weird like he's like holding circular his feet, like human prop yeah. sort of wheel thing. About the bit when he rolls up his water. arms, like yeah. straight up, he like twists that shit. Um, nah, it's too much. Like yeah, that's <laughs> it's the same year as Airplane or whatever. But like people talk about like you know pushing cinema to the limit, but like this is it, mm. and it hasn't been being. Sam, what's your second favorite Altman film? Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill and the Indians, yeah, good what choice, man. Yeah. Yeah. What have you got? Three Women mm. from 1977. This yeah. should have been in my top five, to be honest. So I watched it about a week ago, or like whenever we did the show at Jamie's house. Mm. And then I saw you the next day and I was like, I didn't really like Three Women. 
but I haven't stopped thinking. It was so, you know, this is what this is what it's like when someone watches like Mulholland Drive or something mm, like that. And obviously, they're very comparable films. Yeah. Yeah. But it has so much mystery to it, and there's so much to it that like you don't even clock is going on while you're watching it. But Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall, incredible. It is a ripoff of Persona, but it's better than Persona <laughs> by miles. It was so intriguing. I don't know. Maybe it was the vibe. Maybe it was what it had to say. Maybe it's it's one of his most like concrete films, despite being so elliptical and mysterious. I mean, it's literally a film that's inspired by a dream, right? Yeah. And it made sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought it was brilliant. Lots of like it. sort of role reversal stuff. I guess that's the persona. Um, the paintings by Bodhi... Wind. Bodhi Wind. Yeah, they're fucking out there. I'm sorry we uh, hadn't seen this when we spoke about painters in our last sure. episode. Um, yeah, uh, the third woman in the film is, um, what's her name, Janice Rule? Janice Rule, yeah. Um, and she barely speaks in the film. <laughs> she barely speaks. But again... Well, it's about three women, it's about two women. Yeah, that's, that is entirely it. <laughs> um, but yeah, she spends most of the time just like painting these like crazy murals full of weird like sort of harpy-ish beaked women. Yeah spooky it also yeah so i guess it is very much so influenced by just like the mood of like art house cinema mm. in a very explicit way much like brewster mcleod yeah, yeah but that just has like a very different well i guess the fellini influence is mm. the one that's cited there it's, it's just a crazy so, film it's just so mad yeah and two brilliant performances um, <laughs> well, no, uh, Sissy Spacek and um, Shelley Duvall are yeah. like definitely the main characters, it's fair to say. Um, yeah, they basically both play two characters and it's brilliantly done. The dialogue is wild. The recipes, I never want to eat that food in my life. Um, but I'd recommend it to pretty much anyone. If you like these fucking A24 movies that I like as well, but <laughs> if you like those and you ain't seen three women like, you're sleeping, I'm sorry. You're asleep like Robert Altman when he wrote this film. <laughs> Sam, what's your number one? Because mine's Dr. T and the women. Yeah. <laughs> In line with being an extremely spoilerific podcast, I can now reveal that it's also your number one and it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller yeah. from 71. A film that I guess we've already waxed lyrical about in this episode, but uh, yeah, as a study of like early American history, or I guess like late 19th century American history. It's just got it all in terms of what you're know, about what, to do a PhD what you wanna, about. What you want to graze on, you know? Yeah. But um, yeah, Vilmos <laughs> Zygmunt's cinematography in this one is just unbelievable. I feel like maybe we've already touched on this, but I need to speak about it more. <laughs> it's just got an absolutely unbelievable aesthetic. The mobile camera is, is there, but it's more the... They the iron, sort the of vignetting double, or whatever. Yeah, he so does that in fucking a, quintet as well, man. Did you know about this? Nah. That's in like a fucking like a Lubitsch film, right? Where it's like the iris and it's like there's the the blurred like outer edges of the frame. It's where they've like basically they expose the film stock before, before they, they shot use it. it. Yeah. So then it has this weird dreamy quality, right? It just looks beautiful. I'm so sad we didn't get to see this in the cinema, to be honest, because as you said, the small screen just doesn't feel like it does it justice, but I also want everyone to watch it. It's um, about as close as it comes to like a justification of cinema to me. It's like any film, maybe playtime, but like 
again comparable films but like it's just too sick and you know i think this prostitutes and heroin stuff is icky man but <laughs> i'm back yeah um I don't, I, it's just like the quintessential uh, revisionist western as well though isn't it I guess um, we spoke about Buffalo Bill probably not as much as I wanted to really and that's like maybe more aggressive in it's sort of reconfiguration of American like historiography but this it works it on you doesn't presents it presents just a different picture the yeah. first cow comparison is definitely the one in terms of setting the sort of new model for like thinking about this but just an utterly spellbinding film, harrowing as well. Um, God, the seven foot, the fucking John Everett Millay's grandson or whatever. Mm. Scariest, like the villain. Mm. Like, scary, man. Is that the guy that's like, I didn't come here to make deals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck. Wonderful. <laughs> Truly a brilliant film. It's the best. Robert Altman. Do you love Robert Altman? You asked me this not long ago and I was like, I don't know. I. I do. I think he's like one of my favourite American directors. <laughs> he said that like all of his innovations he took from Howard Hawks and mm. no one clocked him doing it. Which is something I never... It's so clear once I've heard him say that. What do you think the features... The overlapping dialogue, the whole anarchic spirit, mm. the amount of characters. He's probably compared to Preston Sturges more than Howard Hawks or whatever. But he captures that angle. I would also say that like, fucking he chooses to make like deep films and like nasty films for the most part. But like Michael Haneke is also kind of somewhat towards that mm. where he's just, he sees through a lot of stuff, which is something that I think Altman will always be remembered for. Even if um, he's not a filmmaker who like falls in and out of favor so much like um, Ford does or someone like that or Hawks, just because I think his films are too sick. Mm. And as I said before, like he's better than these other loser nerds that, <laughs> like more loser, loser, loser jock, yeah, yeah. <laughs> jock ass nerds, nerd ass jocks. Um, yeah, he's better than these other nerd ass jocks that people tell you American cinema or like the seventies is like the best films out. And they ain't, but Altman, I'm glad. You know. Yeah, I said I hoped it wouldn't be a loving, but it fucking has been, hasn't it? he made loads of banging films he did make some terrible films but that's okay man <laughs> we'll do the patreon on like quintet and beyond therapy or whatever um so that's something to look forward to great subscribe to the patreon yeah give us a rating on whatever app you use to listen to us on follow us on instagram and put one in the air for robert Altman. <laughs> i've been emmett i'm sad lots of love Everything is food, food, food. Everything is food to go. Everything is food for thought. Everything you need is though it is food. Everything is food. Everything is meat, meat, meat. Careful what you put on your feet Once it lived on an and a Now it walks along with you Good is food Everything is food I would gladly pay to stay for a hamburger today He would gladly
Everything is fine. 